If you're a guest, welcome to First Baptist Church of Thibodeau. And members know that we uh, have been praying for you guys and we want to continue to do so. This week, we are focused on praying for the lost. Praying for lost family members, lost friends, lost co-workers, lost neighbors. Um, so this week, I, I, I want you to be able to do that, voice that to the Lord. Uh, maybe lost uh, a spouse that is lost, your children that are lost. Um, spend this week praying and fasting for the salvation of your lost friends and family members. Uh, I want to do something a little different. I do want us to be able to pray right now. Let's pray right now. So, so what I want us to do is whoever the Lord just laid on your heart at this very moment, a lost family member, friend, whoever it is, I, I want you to start praying. So there's be a moment of silence where you can pray, and then after, I will pray for us, okay? So let's just right now, let's pray. Let's seek the Lord. Father, we need you. We need you to save souls like you saved us. God, we have lost family members and friends that we would love to see come to know you as Lord and Savior. We love them. We care deeply about them. And God, we know that the only thing that is eternal is the word of God, your word, and the souls of men. God, we cannot take our homes with us to the afterlife. We cannot take our possessions with us to the afterlife. But God, we can take our loved ones with us, the souls of men. So God, I pray that we will be busy about sharing Christ with people, sharing the gospel and praying for our lost family members and friends. God, I find sometimes we're so distracted where we are busy with our careers. We're, we're busy with, with uh, making money. We're, we're busy with everything else, but not busy in praying for the lost. The, the one thing that is eternal. God, give us a heart. A heart for lost people. Holy Spirit, allow us to pray in the Spirit by you supernaturally giving us the words to say and you supernaturally giving us the power to pray. So give us a great unction to pray for the lost people. Save them, God. Lead them by your grace. In your mighty and precious name. Amen, amen, amen. We are in the book of 1 Samuel, and as Lauren read the text, the, today's sermon title is God's Plan. God's Plan. It is often said things happen for a reason. I'm pretty sure you've heard that before. That sentiment or statement is not necessarily um, faith in God, um, but it could be some Eastern religion, belief, um, or even karma, right? 
So we understand that that very statement as a Christian, it is true, but we need to add to that statement or sentiment. But what must we add? This is what we say as Christians. Things do not merely happen for a reason in general, but the events in, of our, in our lives or of our lives happen for God's hope. I'm sorry, happens for God's holy, wise, and infinitely good purpose. Right? We understand this as Christians. This just happened for a reason. No, it happens, but God is sovereign and God is in control. God is in control. According to the Apostle Paul, when he mentions in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And we often go through life not understanding or not seeing how God is working in our circumstances and situations. As Christians, we should be aware of it. And what we need to understand is to turn to God and say to God, show me how you are working in my situation and in my circumstances, whether they're good or bad. Show me how you are working. Show me how you're using this to forge a great character in me. This is exactly what James mentioned. When he says to pray for wisdom, this is what James is asking for. Pray for wisdom in the midst of difficulties in the midst of persecution you see we as christians we often question certain things when it happens to us how can god's call and purpose for my life possibly be related to the messy affairs around me how can god use the messy affairs around me for my good this is this is something we ask right and you might be asking this this morning. How can my mistakes, my sins, my responsibilities work within God's plans for my life? What if I sin? Does that thwart God's purpose in my life? This is what we ask. And these are good questions to ask. The passage before us this morning illustrates how God's will and desire for our lives work out in our everyday affairs. We see the sovereignty of God working in the life of David. Isn't it amazing? It is illustrated in the life of David. And David, this is the first time we're hearing of David in 1 Samuel. And David is by far one of my favorite characters in Scripture. As a matter of fact, David is an Old Testament character that is mentioned more than any other Old Testament character. 66 chapters are dedicated or devoted to David. He is mentioned over 900 times in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, he is mentioned the most, right? Out of all the Old Testament saints, David is mentioned the most in the New Testament over 60 times. He is described as a man after God's own heart. And one of the greatest things about David is that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is said to be the son of David. Wow. 
Isn't it amazing just to learn about David? So what we want to do is we want to learn from David, but we want to look through David. Because when we look through David, we see a better David, and that is Jesus Christ. We learn from David in the Old Testament. We learn about his character. We learn about his love for God. We learn about his patience. We, we learn about his obedience, yes, but we want to look through David. This is the importance of the New Testament saints. There is a greater David here, and he is Jesus Christ. But this morning, I want us to see two things that God uses in our lives to accomplish his plan. And we see this in the life of David. But it's not just David. If you are a child of God this morning, this is how God is working in your life. He uses more than two things, but there are two things within this passage of Scripture. Two tools that I think we need to closely evaluate. What are they? God uses ours. God uses time to accomplish his purpose in our lives. God is not rushing this process of sanctification in your life. He is not. If that was the case, God will save you and then take you to heaven. But no, God is using time to mold you and shape you to look more and more like his son. In the same way he used time in the life of David. God uses our situations and circumstances to accomplish his purpose in our lives. Yes, he does. Yes. When the doctor says to you, you have cancer, even that God is using to shape your life. God is using good circumstances and bad circumstances to shape you to look more and more like him. This is his ultimate plan. Did you get this? This is why for us as Christians, we need to embrace this. So the prosperity gospel preachers don't embrace this and they're neglecting a very important aspect about God's discipleship. When God is making disciples, God is going to use pain in your life. To shape you to look more and more like Jesus. And, and when we embrace that, man, we can glorify God even more, right? So I pray, I pray that you are engaged and as we dive into the Word of God together. The, the first point here, the first point here is God uses time to accomplish His purpose in our lives. One of the most difficult things for us to do is to wait. Can I get an amen? Amen. It is quite difficult, and especially in our westernized culture, when anything and everything we want is at the tip of our fingers, right? It's like Burger King, have it your way. Whatever we want, we have Amazon, I want something, just click on it, buy it, I don't have money, get a credit card, right? Whatever we want, we can get very quickly. But having such disposition and the pursuit of such attitude will give us a sense of self-gratification. It does not help us. It will not help us. But what God has taught us, especially when it comes to Christianity, we must wait. We must be patient. We cannot enter into the Christian faith and say to ourselves, the moment I get saved, I want to be a super saint. I want to know everything about God. 
right? No, we, we learned this. For those of you who've been walking with Christ for a while, you understand it took time. It took time for God to mold and shape you to be in where you are today. You've been through difficulties and pains. You, you, you've bled. You've done all of these things, right? And God has used these things, used time in your life to bring you where you are today, right? Don't, don't miss this. God does not hurry in his development of our Christian life. He is working from and for eternity. He is. And sometimes we use this statement to describe our children. They, they're, they're going from 5 to 12, right? Or, or we'll say uh, they're, they're going from 12 to 30. And, and when we use that to describe our children, what we're really trying to articulate is that they're trying to bypass time. They're trying to grow up way too fast. But the beauty of life is to enjoy the time that God has given us to be able to grow. When it comes to Christianity, life and knowing God's will, we are guilty of the same thing. God, just, just give it to me right now. God, God I want to be spiritually grown right now. I want everything right now. And God is like, I am using time to teach you a very important principle. Uh, one of the greatest books I've read early on in my discipleship, of Tim LaFleur gave multiple guys and women who discipled this particular book called The Complete Green Letters by Miles J. Stanford. And in that book, he shares, there's a chapter on time that he describes how God uses time to mold us and shape us to look more and more like him. And in that chapter, he shares uh, about this one professor, Dr. A.H. Strong, who illustrated the importance of time to his students. And one student came to him, and the student asked the president of his school whether he could not take a shorter course than the one prescribed. Oh, yes, replied the president. But when it depends on what you want to be, God wants to make an oak tree. He takes a hundred years. But when he wants to make a squash, he takes only six months. So which one do you want to be? A squash or an oak tree? An oak tree endures. But it takes time for this oak tree to develop. It takes hurricane upon hurricane, disaster upon disaster. All of these things for this oak tree that we look upon, we look at, that's been enduring for hundreds of years. That's what we should want as Christians. Friends, we can see how God used time in the life of David. There's no doubt. I want you to put yourself in David's situation. Here's David, a shepherd boy, a shepherd. He's taking care of his father's flock. And then he is summoned. And they told David, hey, Samuel, the prophet, is at your dad's house. And he wants you. So one second, David is taking care of the flock. The next second, he's entering his house. And Samuel is anointing him as king from shepherd to now king. Wow. David, 
I can imagine we'll probably have a lot of questions. Well, what must I do next? Uh, well, do I go to the throne? Do I, do I kick Saul out of the throne? But no, what God did through Samuel, we don't have it written here, but for sure we understand that David went back to shepherding. <laughs> now, in verse 13 and verse 14, many scholars believe there are years apart from verse 13 and 14. So for years... David had to continue shepherding the flock of God. And it was then that God used time to mold and shape the life of David to prepare him to be the king of Israel. This is the beauty here about the word of God. I, I love what Miles J. Stanford mentioned here. He said, it takes time to know ourselves. It takes time and eternity to get to know our infinite Lord Jesus Christ. And thank God, he has given us time. Oh, friends, enjoy the time that you have right now. Yes, it might be painful right now, but God is using that to draw you closer and closer to him. It is a part. It is a part of his plan. It is a part of his plan and his purpose for your life. It is time. Friends, God does not call the qualify. He qualifies the call. He didn't call David because David was qualified. No. He qualified David. And he is using time to qualify David for the task ahead. Are you questioning God's timing in your life? Do you think God is too slow? Well, God should let you know his purpose for your life right now. You feel like you should be a super saint right now, right? No. Enjoy the process. What I like about this text is I see the comparison and contrast, really the contrast between Saul and David. First, we, we notice that David is anointed by Samuel, but Saul is rejected by God. David is anointed by God. Saul is rejected by God. David is filled with the Spirit of God, as we notice, right? In verse 13, he's filled with the Spirit of God. And then in verse 14, we notice that Saul, the Spirit of God, has been removed or departed away from Saul. But not only that, there is a torment spirit upon Saul. And brothers and sisters, this is a very problematic text, right? At first glance, we, we have a lot of questions concerning this, that the Lord removed his spirit from Saul, and the Lord sent a tormenting spirit to terrorize Saul. Are you reading this? I'm reading the same text. So, so we have a few questions that we must ask. A few questions that we must ask. Well, I want to invite you in my studies as I ask three questions, and I'm going to ask those questions and answer those questions based on the Scripture. First, since the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, does that indicate that we can lose our salvation? Now, I've already answered that question, but I'll do it again. And there's, there are more evidence here in the narrative that points to the fact that Saul was unregenerate than Saul was regenerate. You get it? There are more evidence in the Scripture 
that points to the fact that Saul was lost. The only evidence that we might think that Saul was saved is that the Spirit was upon him and that Saul prophesied. So we say to ourselves, if the Spirit is upon someone and someone prophesied, then they must be saved. And I want to show you that's not necessarily the case. That's scary, but it's not the case. So here are several things I want you to observe why Saul was lost. First, by the way, he was chosen. He was chosen by God to be the king of the people, not the king of God or God's king. He is the people's king, not God's king. Every attribute of Saul was based on what the lost people would want. God gave them a king so the king would discipline them. The king would do certain things to them. Saul was the king of the people. Time and time again, as we're reading through the narrative, we see that. Secondly, he was consistently disobedient to God. Do you remember? Right after he prophesied, God said to Saul, take whatever your hands can hold, which means to go and fight against the Philistine garrison in your hometown. What did Saul do? He disobeyed God. That's the first disobedience. The second, Samuel says to Saul, after you're done, I want you to go to Gilgal and wait for me and we will sacrifice an animal to God. What did Saul do? Did not wait on Samuel. Third, after he fought against the Amalekites, the one king that God asked him to destroy and destroy everything, he kept the king alive and he kept certain spoils alive. And then God says, my spirit will depart from you. You're no longer a king. So we see consistently in the narrative, Saul is disobedient to God. And fourth, how do we know that Saul is not saved? And how do we know? The spirit resting upon someone does not make them save. It's because scripture talks often about the spirit resting upon someone basically just to empower them to do the work of the ministry. And sometimes they're not even saved. Well, Kevin, do you have evidence? In the book of Numbers, Balaam, a false prophet, God's spirit rushed upon him to prophesy against the enemies of God's people. Was Balaam saved? No. How do you know that? The end of Balaam's life, he was unregenerate. God disciplined him, right? He was a false prophet. Then we have Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Isn't that exactly what Saul did? Did I not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And listen to what the Lord said. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you which means you were never a part of me. You will never regenerate. You will never save. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So God's spirit departing from Saul does not equate to God saying you have lost your salvation. Rather, God's spirit removing or departing from Saul indicates that God's power is no longer on Saul. God anointed Saul to be king and to fight against the enemies of God. No longer can Saul do that. God's spirit is not empowering him anymore. Second question I think is very important for us to answer. Was God responsible for Saul's disobedience? Maybe you're asking this question as we read through the text. 
Because it mentions that God's spirit departed from Saul and then God sent this harmful spirit to torment Saul. So the question we must ask ourselves, so from now on, everything that Saul does, is God responsible for that? Because God's spirit is no longer on him and God now is sending a, a spirit to torment Saul. And some people might even ask that question, but friends, I need you to understand this. Understand it with this illustration. Suppose a judge threatens to suspend the license of a driver with numerous offenses. Numerous offenses. He has DUIs, he has all those other things, numerous offenses. And immediately after the judge warns him, he goes... He drinks again and he's pulled over. He's arrested. His license is suspended. It would be foolish to think the judge gave the warning simply to lure the driver into committing another infraction. It would be ridiculous for us to think, well, if the judge would not have warned him, he wouldn't have actually ended up with a DUI. None of us would do that in the same way as we observe how God disciplined Saul here by removing his spirit and bringing a tormenting spirit is really the Lord warning Saul throughout the narrative. Saul, obey. Saul, obey. Saul, obey. And when Saul does not obey, what does God do? He removes his spirit and anointing from Saul and he disciplines Saul. He brings judgment upon Saul by causing a harmful spirit to come upon him. You get this. The suspense, the suspension is a result of repeated offense. So it is with God. So it is with God. That God here is judging Saul. He is judging Saul. Now some translation translate this as an evil spirit. They would say that God brought an evil spirit to Saul on Saul's life. But friends, I want you to observe that's not the case here, which leads us to the third question. The third question is, what does it mean that God sent a harmful spirit to torment Saul? Isn't God a good God? Yes, he is a good God. How do we, how do we justify God sending a harmful spirit to Saul with what James mentioned concerning God, right? In James chapter 1, verse 13 through 14, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. In other words, God will not tempt you with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So how do we look at this passage of scripture, God bringing a harmful spirit, and as some translations Right, if you have the NASB, NIV, it says an evil spirit. How can God bring an evil spirit to harm Saul when James chapter 1 says that God is, is not tempted with evil? And let me explain this to you very carefully. The, the word here is better as the English translation says harmful spirit. It's not evil spirit here. The Hebrew word really alludes to a harmful spirit. In other words, what the Lord did here is that he sent an angel, an agent to torment Saul, to bring judgment upon Saul because of his disobedience. 
And some people will still have problems with this. But we as Christians who believe the Bible understands this, that God will torment those who disobey his word. We understand why hell is the reason why it is, right? It's a constant eternal torment of those who have disobey God and disregard the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What the angel is doing here to Saul, sent from the Lord, is exactly what lost people, if they don't trust in Jesus Christ, will endure forever. And this is not a thing for us to celebrate in, but something for us to weep over. Removing hell from the Bible is not going to help people. It is a consistent problem. It's a consistent saying in Scripture. And even in the Old Testament here, we notice that God is judging Saul, friends. One commentator mentioned Saul's torture or torture state was not an accident of nature nor was it essentially a medical condition. Some people would say, well, in that text, Saul was bipolar. It was all medical. No, this was spiritual. It was a supernatural assault by a being sent at the Lord's command. And it was brought on by Saul's disobedience, my friends. Consistent rebellion against the things of God will result in God's judgment. I wish you were, if you were not in Sunday school, I wish you were part of that. It was incredible to listen to the brothers and sisters talk about the, the character and attribute of God. We can talk about the love of God, but we cannot diminish the wrath and justice of God. And this is, this is what he's doing here. He's talking about God's justice, God's judgment upon Saul. Saul's judgment is a far greater torment of the soul that people will experience in hell. So we must cry out to God. Come in closer, friends. Come in closer and get this. It is true that unrepentant sin is often the cause of emotional, psychological, and even physical distress. And that's what we notice in the life of Saul. A lack of repentance and consistent rebellion. And I want to speak to you this morning. If you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you've heard the gospel on a consistent basis, and you are consistently rebelling against God. Yes, he is a loving and merciful and kind God. But one day, one day, listen, one day you will have to answer to this God. Don't listen to the foolishness that preachers are telling you that hell does not exist. We all are going to make it to heaven. The Bible does not preach stuff like this. The Bible tells us that there will be the goat and there will be the sheep. And which one are you? The sheep will be received in the presence of God and the goats will be expelled from the presence of God. There is a place called hell that we, people who don't know Jesus, will spend eternity away from Jesus. I'm not trying to scare you. I know, I know. We, we live in a culture where we are fearful all the time. I'm not trying to scare you. If anything, I want you to understand the grace and mercy of God and the justice of our God. 
You know what I learned about this passage of Scripture as we move to the second point? I think it's important that we see this. Don't miss this. We should count the withdrawal of God's Spirit as the worst possible calamity and the presence of God's Spirit as the greatest possible help. And for a Christian, God doesn't remove His Spirit from you But what happens is this, you can grieve the Holy Spirit when you continue in sin. Friends, see what Scripture mentions here, how important it is for us to turn to God and how God is using time in the life of David. But at the same time, we notice how God is judging Saul because of his disobedience. Even, oh, coming close, I want you to get this as we move to the second point. Even as God is disciplining Saul and judging Saul, we still see a glimpse of God's mercy in the life of Saul. Because you know what happens next? Here is David, and David is found, and David is playing music for Saul. And when David plays for Saul, the spirit, this harmful spirit, departs. This is the grace of God. But because Saul is so hardened, he's not turning to the grace of God. He's not repentant. Even in God's judgment, we see God's grace. Don't miss this. Notice with me the second point. God uses our situations in life to accomplish his purpose. This is why James, the half-brother of Jesus, mentioned, if you remember very carefully, In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What is James saying? He's learned the secret by learning from the Old Testament saints and in his own life, that God uses his situation and circumstances for his purpose, for his glory, to make us look more and more like Christ. Here we have it, according to the story, it mentioned that Saul is being tormented, and as he's being tormented, notice something else about Saul. I didn't mention that to you, and the reason why Saul wasn't saved is that because Saul wasn't a spiritual person he really wasn't do you remember in chapter 9 in chapter 9 of the book of 1st Samuel Saul's father's donkeys have strayed and Saul is trying to find the donkey cannot find the donkeys it was Saul's servant who said to him hey there is a seer a man of God his name is Samuel let's go to him and he will help us It shows that Saul is not a spiritual person. He's not concerned about spiritual matters. It's his servant who's telling Saul, here is something spiritual that you must do. And then again, in this pericope, verses 14 through 23, we see the same thing. Here is Saul tormented by evil spirits or harmful spirits, right? Harmful spirits. And you would think that Saul would turn to God, that he would turn to Samuel. But it's his servants here who are telling Saul, Hey Saul, why don't you turn to someone that can help you by playing music, 
and that will help you. Do you notice? Saul is not a spiritual person. He's not thinking about spiritual things at all. So here we have it. His servants recommend that he goes to find Je the, to the house of Jesse, and then there is David. David would come, and David would play, and as David is playing, and this is what they believe, they believe in that time that music, music would combat evil spirits. And by playing this instrument, Saul would feel better. And in some way, that kind of helps a little bit, because we understand even when we're going through difficult times, man, we can, we can put some praise and worship music soft praise and worship music, and we, we, can, we can feel better, relaxes us. It's just something that music does. But ultimately here, it's not music that Saul needs. Saul needs to repent and turn to God. So here we have it that his servants are recommending something to Saul, but really what he needs is true repentance. But notice what the servant said to Saul and how he describes David, which is incredible. This is how God uses our circumstances and situations. David, in verse 18, is considered to be or called a man of valor, a man of war, a prudent, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord was with him, the polar opposite of Saul. Wow. But how was David able to be these things? God used circumstances and situations to be able to shake David to look like this, my friends. The time that God used, the situation and circumstances that God is using is exactly how David ended up being this way. God is the ultimate disciple maker. Well, let's break this down. David was commanded for his courage and ability, a man of valor, a man of war. David fought for the glory of God. And later on, in chapter 17, we will hear what David would say. David would say to Saul and the army of Israel, when they asked him, how, how are you going to fight against Goliath? And he said, God was with me. When the animals came to attack my flock, God was with me. David was a man of valor, a man of war. Well, should we be the same? If we see someone who is very patriotic, does that mean that he is of God, right? Not necessarily. This is not the point here. And being patriotic is not a bad thing. We should be, right? We should be. We should pray for our country. We, we, should, we should pray for right things here in the USA. We, we are thankful for what God has given us. We should be. But that's not the point here. For us in the New Testament, this is not a physical war that God is calling us to fight. There is this spiritual war. The way that we can be a man of valor, a man of war, is that we are fighting this spiritual warfare, that we constantly have our armor on. This is the beauty of it. So when I see a Christian and I can say he's a man of valor, I know he has his spiritual armor on. The breastplate of righteousness, the shield, the helmet, the shoes, the sword. This is what we must understand here. Next he mentions... The next attribute or next characteristic of David is that David was prudent in speech. This is so good for us, especially young Christians, young people desire to be Christians. And you say you are Christians, but yet your speech is dirty, absolutely filthy. 
Christians, we speak differently. We do. And, and the way we speak, I need you to get this. I tell my children this all the time because it's true. It's a, it's a biblical and Christian principle. The way you speak is an indication of your heart. Scripture consistently says this. It does. For example, in the book of Proverbs, it talks about how we need to guard our hearts as the wellspring of life. And then immediately he adds, put away from your crooked speech or from your crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Jesus mentioned in the book of Matthew, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So your speech is an indication of your heart. How do you speak? Is it uplifting or is it degrading? Is it more like the world? How do you speak? Richard Phillips, this is what he states. Godly speech is learned through the word of God and is a fitting theme for our prayers. He's absolutely right. Which leads us to the next characteristic. A person who is prudent in speech also possesses a good presence. It's true. If you're prudent in speech, man, I would love to hang with you and be with you. If your speech is constantly dirty and filthy, the last thing I want to do is be around you. So, so prudent speech accompanies good presence. And I wonder, lost people, do they love to be around you? Do they see you as a person with prudent speech and good presence? Maybe that's why they never come to know the gospel, because you are stumbling block by the way you speak and the way you act. It must be prudent speech and a good presence. Young people, teenagers, please get this. The world is telling you that the way you need to act is to be mean and hateful and prideful. No, no. And the Bible is the opposite of this. Be loving and kind, gracious. That's how we ought to be. And you must have a good presence about you. This is the work of God in you. If you're claiming to be a Christian, you must have this good presence about you. I'm tired of people saying, man, I, I love Jesus, but I hate people. Right? Come on. Really? Really? I spend time with Jesus all the time, but I just can't stand people. You know, Jesus loves people. They're made out of the Imago Dei of Christ. And finally, he mentions the Lord was with him. The most important description here about David, that God was with David when he fought against wild animals God was with him when he will fight against Goliath he will say God is with me every circumstance and every situation in David's life he understood a very important principle don't miss this God was with him and now David is in the courts of Saul the presence of Saul playing music for Saul the harmful spirit will depart the text mentioned that even Saul loved David greatly. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. That love that Saul has for David is not a genuine love, friends. It's a love that David was playing and the spirit departed. He only loved David based on what David gave him. 
But immediately we will find out, as we would read through the narrative, how Saul would try to kill David over and over and over again. You're not going to try to kill someone you love greatly. Saul loved himself. But even in that very moment, friends, as we close, don't miss this. God had David learning and waiting and being patient for his glory. Here is Saul, who is the king. David is the king that God has newly appointed. And David is learning from Saul. He's learning what to do, and he's also learning what not to do. David is teaching us how we ought to be with employers who treat us horribly. What do we do? We can learn. We can learn from them. We can learn what not to do, and we can learn what to do. David is teaching us how to deal with parents who are abusive, parents who are not leading their family as they ought to. You can learn what to do, and you can learn what not to do. This is the beauty here about David. His quiet, humble disposition. Why? Because he trusted in the glory and sovereignty of God, friends. Do you trust in the sovereignty of God? Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? As I close, I want to share this with you about the sovereignty of God in this great illustration. There's a particular species of bird which is called the Gilmot bird. It's a small Arctic bird, seabird, that dwells in the, the rocky cliffs of northern coastal regions. And this bird would basically, what they would do, the female birds will lay small eggs. And as they will lay those small eggs, all the eggs look the same, but they will conjugate all together. So you have hundreds and hundreds of birds in a very small area. But a beautiful thing about those birds is that they know their eggs perfectly fine and well. No matter if a, one egg will be moved to another location, the mother bird will know exactly where that bird, that egg was. It would go and find the egg and will bring the egg back. They will never lay on another bird's egg. They would know instinctively what egg is theirs. And that tells me of an important principle about our great God. God knows his children. He knows our hearts. He knows our emotions. He knows our sins. He knows our attitudes even before we do them. And yet, God is loving and kind and merciful. Yes, he disciplines his children but he disciplines his children to bring them back in the location that they need to be so that they can grow and learn. Do you remember the parable of the 99 sheep, right? One straight away, and then you find that the Lord comes and he brings it back. He brings it back. This is the beauty of our God, the prodigal son. He brings him back. But friends, I want to share with you of the love and mercy of God here for you as a Christian. But notice this. God uses time. God uses circumstances. God uses situations in our lives to shape us to look more and more like him. Do you want to know God's plan for your life? Do you? Well, I could tell you this. Wait on the Lord. Continue serving the Lord. One of the greatest principles I know in Scripture on knowing God's plan for our life 
is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. After the Apostle Paul have shared some important indicative statements, he, he, he continues or he transitions to this imperative command. He says the mercy of God, that we must allow the mercy of God to lead us and to guide us. Then he talks about that we must give to God the spiritual worship. And in verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will know what is the good and perfect will of God. Do you want to know God's will? Rely upon his mercy. Present your life to him as a living sacrifice. Do not be conformed to the patterns of the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds, and then you will know the will of God. And guess what? That takes time. It does. We wait on God. And promise you, He will lead us. And He will show us His purpose for our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your mercy and Your grace. And if anything, we know Your greatest purpose for our life is to conform us into the image of Christ to conform us, O Lord. And if you will use time, circumstances, and situations, then we ask you to use it, O Lord. Let's not blame these things. Let's not be like a squash who desires to be fully developed in six months, but God, we see our lives like an oak tree. It takes hundreds of years. And God, you are the gardener. You are the one watering. You are the one planting. You're the one seeing that there's great increase, God. So we thank you. We worship you. We exalt you. If there's any in this room that don't know you as Lord and Savior, let them run to the grace and mercy of God. God is a merciful, kind, loving God. He's also a just and wrathful God. God, I pray that we'll turn to Jesus. In your mighty and precious name.